Jolly good day, you madams and chaps, and thank you for downloading or streaming the 127th Sticky Wicket, known as Scoring at the Movies. We review old sports films every other Thursday, and we spoil those sports films. Cheerio! I'm the pretty fast runner of the College Dash. The College Dash, Chris! Who gets an orgiastic look on his face when his legs are a-running full. Ryan Ellis. And here's my pip-pip cheerio podcast partner, the not-quite-as-speedy lord of a piece of land over in Scotland, Chris DiGregorio. Oh, thank you, Ryan. I'm not even going to attempt an English accent, because beyond the old pip-pip cheerio, that's about as far as I can go with it. You just did it. (laughs) Oi! But yeah, thanks, Ryan. I believe that God put me on this planet for a reason, and that reason... To not run fast? (laughs) Well, I was going to say, is to tell really strained and bad dad jokes. But yes, he also made me slow, Ryan. Very, very slow. And you don't run with your head back, your hair streaming the breeze, looking like you're having a fine orgasm. No, I look mostly angry and or pained. Because mm-hmm. often I am in pain when, <laughs> when running. <laughs> I wish I was that orgiastic, I guess, about it. <laughs> We're all familiar with movies that are based on true events where you know it's like a kernel of truth that's just been warped all out of accuracy with history. But this movie portrays itself as a more historical and accurate representation of events. Yeah, docudrama. Yeah, which I think it kind of is. But there's definitely a lot that has been made malleable for the sake of drama and something. Which always happens in movies. Sure. But one of the things I did find interesting that when I was reading about what is accurate to history and what is not, Eric Liddell's widow was shown a private screening of this movie before it released widely. I read this too. Did you read that? And she said that her husband was much more graceful and fluid in running Mm -hmm. than is portrayed in screen. Not like Phoebe and Friends. (laughs) Yeah. I hope this portrayal of him running was not truly accurate. But I did enjoy the fact that the wife didn't say he didn't look like he was about to pop his top every time he was running. He was a little more graceful about it than is portrayed here. And the producer said that's the one thing they thought they got right. (laughs) Because they had footage of it. Yeah. It is a very weird running style that this guy's portraying. And part of it is his upper body. He's kind of like all akimbo and flailing Mm -hmm. around a lot. You're talking about 1920s. They weren't so rigid about sports science, maximum efficiency of movement and all that. I get it. But as the race progresses, the head going back and the mouth agape looking like he's about to orgasm here. Not aerodynamic. Not aerodynamic and very strange. I wasn't able to find any comparative footage of the actual Liddell versus this movie because I was curious too. I theorized when we were watching it that it was the actor trying to portray the fact that he, as Liddell, was digging deep and giving it his all because we were treated to a few speeches from that character earlier where he talks about racing is all about digging deep. He's comparing it to faith and pulling it out of yourself in times of trial and things like that. I don't know if it's the actor's choice trying to portray that kind of digging deep element of it, or it was the director saying, all right, what's his name? Charleston, the actor or something like that? Ian Charleston. Ian Charleston. Here's how you're going to do it. You're going to throw your head back. You're going to open your mouth as if I'm going to dump a gallon of Kool-Aid down your throat, and you're going to just swing your arms wildly off to the sides Mm -hmm. while you're doing it. And his wife is going to say, that's wrong. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We spent months training him in this running technique, and it's wrong. It's wrong. (laughs) 
But apparently the other stuff they got right and they couldn't really confirm that so much. So it is backwards and they were surprised by that. Well, Chariots of Fire, I thought about covering this years ago because of all the bona fide days we'll get into in a few minutes. It's one of the most lauded sports films of all time, especially when you talk about AFI and Oscar stuff. So the running in slow motion on a beach movie was released in England in March 1981, but then over the next few months was screened at many film festivals, including the Toronto International Film Festival. I didn't know Tip was quite that old. I didn't either. Before ending up on North American movie screens in September of 1981. It went on to gross five times its budget, so it was a successful film. The critics, Rotten Tomatoes, 83% of them liked this film. 7.7 sure. 7 out of 10 is the average. There are 114 reviews on the site, which is a lot for a movie that's 40-plus years old. And 80% of audiences. It was 7th at the 1981 U.S. box office. Raiders of the Lost Ark, one of the greatest films for me of all time, was number one. Yep. And on Golden Pond was number two. Both of them were up against it for Best Picture, as was Reds, as was Atlantic City. I own four of the movies on that list. And guess which one I don't own? <laughs> Chariots of Fire. <laughs> I like all the four Best Picture nominees more than I like this one, especially yeah. Raiders and on Golden Pond, which Bev and I covered both of those, in fact, many years ago on the other podcast, Have You Ever Seen? Or Top 100 Project back then. So four Oscars, of course, Best Picture. We've now covered, is it three? Definitely two. Million Dollar Baby for Best Picture. That one in 2004. Also won four Oscars. I feel like there's another one we covered. Another Best Picture winner? Yeah. At least two now. So one best picture, Colin Wellen's original screenplay, Milena Kenanero's costumes, and Vangelis's, apparently it's not Vangelis, as William Hurt said at the Oscars that year, Vangelis won for the music score, which of course is one of the most famous music scores of all time. He also did the music for Blade Runner the next year, another pretty classic music score for Ridley Scott. It was nominated for three more, Hugh Hudson for best director, he lost out to Warren Beatty for Reds, Ian Holm for best supporting actor, and Terry Rawlings for his editing. It was 100th on the Top 100 Cheers, the most inspiring list of the AFI. I can respect that. 100th, fine. It was nominated for one, two, three, four more lists. The Top 25 Music Scores. Now, that's tough. 25, it's hard to break into that, but I could see if this had made it. The Sports Category, the Top 100 Genres, the reason we're covering it in the first place. For sure. And then the AFI's 1998 and 2007 Top 100 lists. So it could have made those two lists. And what's funny about that is that despite all the AFI lists, including making one of them, the Cheers list, it won the best foreign film Golden Globe. And I always thought of this, much like Hamlet, the Olivier movie, Tom Jones and a few others, Oliver, the Bev and I covered recently, were British films. But it was on and was nominated for other AFI lists. I don't really get it. (laughs) I've long been confused by a lot of these lists, too. It was distributed by Warner Brothers, and I think maybe even Fox. That must be why. Oh, okay. And they've got two American actors in it, Dennis Christopher and Brad Davis. Yes. Of course, Dennis Christopher, we know from Breaking Away. Mm -hmm. He was Dave. Yeah. Like other movies we've talked about, your perception of it or your enjoyment of it, I think is going to directly relate to when you first saw it. What is it for you then? This isn't the first time, right? This is the first time I've ever seen it start to finish. Okay. It's one of those movies that was certainly on television a lot in the late 80s and through the 90s. And you've seen the clip of The Running of the Beach because we all have seen that. Yeah, and I've seen bits and pieces of this movie over the years, but I've never seen it in its entirety start to finish. And we saw it together, by the way. We did, yeah. And it does not surprise me for a second that this is a movie that's beloved mostly by critics. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe beloved is a strong word, but approved of by critics because it's definitely the kind of movie that if... And we've talked about this with respect to movies like Naked Gun. Critics might not love this, but I think if you watch it as an audience member, you will probably love it. I'm not saying the reverse is true here, but it could be. I think this is definitely a movie that the critics will laud for a number of different reasons. Part of which is 
the interpretation of the screenplay or what the screenplay is trying to convey anyway, and whether or not you as a critic think it's successful or not. I think most critics would think it's successful. Elements of it are unquestionably good. Mm-hmm. You touched on the score, which is all time. It's a great score. A lot of running. Yeah, a lot of sport. For Feels it. authentic for the 1920s. I got a great sense of time and space. I think they did a great job with the cinematography, with the wardrobe, with the set dressing. They had a lot of exterior sets that did a great job of being what they were trying to portray. In I made the era. joke a few times there in Scotland of, why couldn't they find a nice place to shoot <laughs> yeah. other than the Scottish Highlands? These exteriors are so bland <laughs> and ugly. It's vomiting. No, I know. It's, it's a beautifully shot movie. Mm-hmm. And like you said, you really get a feel of time and place. So there's a lot of good in this movie. And even some of the performances, you touched on Ian Holm. I think we both thought he was fine. Oscar worthy? <laughs> he didn't win, at least. And this isn't a knock on Holm, per se. It's just mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot of meat on that character's bones to begin with i'm not sure what more he could have done with it you didn't have one of those big scenes you expect to have because i brought this up when we were watching this you were sitting in the same chair you were when we watched king richard about a year ago and i said to you and bev none of us had ever seen it before it was up for all the oscars it went on to win them forget the slap but ingenue (laughs) ellis who plays will smith's wife i told you both that she was nominated for the oscar and we all said okay fine but why and i said i bet she has a big scene soon she might even cry We'd paused it for the dogs to go outside and take a washroom break. The very next moment, crying, big scene with Will Smith. Yeah. And that's why she was nominated. Yeah. But Holm doesn't have that in this movie. Not really. The closest thing he has is when he sees the flag of Great Britain go up above the skyline from his apartment. And he quietly celebrates the fact that Abrams won. Or Abrahams, but however you want to pronounce yeah. it. Goes both ways in this movie a so lot. So we can do too. We can yeah. do that too. <laughs> and I will. I promise you. So he sort of like punches the top off his hat in celebration mm-hmm. quite quietly, in fact, and that was about it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he doesn't have the big scene. We don't see any of the medals be put around their necks like we see in so many other no. Olympics movies. No, exactly. And the place I want to start with this movie, since you brought it up as the making the AFI Top 100 Cheers, Yeah. Okay. you kind of hinted at this when you were reading off the bona fides there, and you said now you can see it. But when you were watching this movie, did you feel like that moment of, and this is not a sports movie, but it's one that immediately came to mind, the moment in Endgame when, you know... Oh, one of my favorite moments ever. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Exactly. Two Captain, moments back to back. It's when he calls Mjolnir. Captain America calling Mjolnir. Right. I saw the movie almost alone, because by then the movie wasn't so popular. I saw it in a theater where very few people seemed to go anyway. Yeah. And I, I'm not even the biggest Marvel fan. I like them plenty. But I'm, yeah, yeah type of moment exactly and then yes avengers assemble so two moments in the span of five minutes are two of my favorite movie moments ever yeah in a recent movie do i have that feeling from this movie no no exactly and if you're talking about one of the most cheer worthy movies in history i feel like you should feel some semblance and i felt none of that here i think i know why and part of it is the heavy emphasis on faith being like a a mandatory component of it Mm -hmm. i'm going to Leave that off to the side, because I'm sure we're going to have a lot of different things to say about that. But the other element of it, and this is something I did mention to you when we were watching these final moments of the respective races in Paris, which is where all the climaxes of the various arcs come, right? We get Abrams winning, and that's when Ian Holm has his moment. We don't even see the medal ceremony. We don't see the announcement of who won. All we get is a very subdued raising of the great British flag on the skyline, and then Ian Holm's reaction, which is also itself subdued and fairly brief. Yeah. But then we get a considerably longer stretch of time where we follow Liddell's race and we get him victorious in the end. And then there's a bit of a rousing score over the top of that and it lasts quite a bit longer. I wanted those two arcs reversed. More than happy to have Liddell be successful, but I wish his arc was a little bit more subdued 
because Abrams was the one that we focused on as being the underdog because of his Jewish faith, the one that was not given the same opportunities, who was really the guy who was espousing, I'm going to do this. I'm going to work hard at it. I'm going to give it everything I have because I want to succeed. The self-driven character, the self-made man, as opposed to the guy that was more about... The chosen one. The chosen one, exactly. He may be Scottish, but he's still the chosen one. Yeah. So for me as an audience member... I would have felt more rousing if I'd been given that stronger buildup for the self-made character as opposed to, like you said, the chosen one. And facing anti-Semitism as well. That's right. It felt Which t- wasn't as bad as, say, in School Ties or something like that. That was no. a Brendan Fraser movie, I think he said. Yeah, it was, yeah. But same basic idea. I say this knowing full well that every character in this movie was upper crust. They're at Cambridge, so it's all relative, right? But the Abrams character definitely had more to overcome to succeed than the Liddell character, who right off the top of this movie was feted as a star rugby wing. His only obstacle was really his sister, who I didn't realize watching this movie, I thought that was his wife. Apparently it was his sister. She's worried about him racing. Oh, the scene in the Highlands we talked about, that was his sister, wasn't it? It's his sister, yeah. yeah. You should be focusing on your faith, Eric, not racing. And that's where you get the whole, God put me here for a reason, but he also made me fast and I feel his love when I race kind of stuff. Or I feel his pleasure when I race, which was ironic because of the look (laughs) on his face when he races. Maybe not ironic, maybe fitting. Maybe fitting. So cheerworthy? Not for me. I enjoyed watching the movie as a whole, but I didn't feel roused by it. I didn't feel like I wanted to stand up and cheer Liddell's success. Before I respond, open up your beverage oh, yeah. there. You haven't done that yet. We're well into That's this. I've got some water on the side here. I did toy with the idea of bringing a nice sherry over here. To, oh, good plan, yeah. Because this is such a... Or a, a pint. <laughs> no, no, but this is too upper crust for a pint, right? You've got to have like a nice port or a nice sherry or something. Mm. Now, we should be wearing the starched cardboard <laughs> tuxes with the long tails and everything, too. Or the sweater tied around our waist. Yes, exactly. Or around our shoulders. Around our shoulders. So the religious angle, I'm going to cover that in the nutshell right now. Do it. Chariots of Fire in a nutshell. If the key to real estate is location, 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 then the key to Chariots of Fire is religion, religion, religion. <laughs> Good true. God, I got tired of hearing about God. I got Especially from Liddell, but even from Abrams. Yeah. I forgot how religious this movie is. And Bev and I covered A Man for All Seasons, I guess that was a couple of years ago. Man, time flies by. That was 2021, I think, yeah. That movie is, of course, all about religion with Thomas More. I am not going to do something against my faith, which, of course, Liddell's whole thing in this movie. That's right. And I got to think about other movies that are about faith that have won Oscars, and it's plenty. Braveheart, I just covered that last month. That's about faith. Mel Gibson and his friends are very religious. The Oscars love, as do generally critics, I guess, movies that are about standing by your principles and standing by your faith. And in this one, and this movie in general, I just don't care. I say this acknowledging I'm not a religious person of any description either, so I also don't particularly care. But you were raised Catholic. Let's not forget that. I was not raised religious. Well, I wasn't. You were. I wasn't. I have Catholic family, and I was around it. But oh, I that you did all that kind I of did. stuff. Okay. No. It doesn't speak to me. I anymore. stand correct. <laughs> but I take your point. I think you're absolutely right. Hollywood in general, and I think critics in general, do really love the principled man or woman in a script that's really standing by their ideals, religious in particular. Especially if it's Christian or Catholic. Yes. But even if it's Jewish, I'm sure they respect that to some degree, a different kind of degree, but exactly. they respect the person that's going to put everything out there for God. I'm not going to complain that somebody enjoys a particular type of story. That's perfectly subjective, right? Movie watching is subjective. You can enjoy one thing more than another. One of the reasons this movie bothers me, maybe more now than it would have if I watched it when it first, well, I would have been too young when it first came out, but even if I'd watched it 20, 30 years ago. You were zero. When I was zero, out. yeah. <laughs> or maybe a few months old. So it would have been quite a hard watch for me back then. Mm-hmm. 
this is something I also raised to you as making it harder for me to watch this movie now. This notion of the man of principle, and I'll just use man of principle instead of man, woman, or otherwise of principle because this character in this movie is a man. So yeah. this man of principle character in this movie maybe would have rung a little bit better in the 80s when the movie came out versus now because we see in politics, in the world in general, the very partisan nature of the way the world's become. I've got this principle and I will not bend on it. That's not maybe the most admirable trait. There's certain principles, sure, you can definitely hold firm. But I think to say, I will not bend on any of my principles because they are my principles is how we get into a state of conflict and going down a bad path in the world generally. Whereas finding ways to compromise, meet in the middle and talk things through. Being a grown up. Is being, yeah, that's a more grown up attitude about things. And the character in this movie that more embodied that, again, to me, was Abrams. Because even though he recognized over and over and was told over and over, like you said, this movie has really heavy religious overtones, especially early on, that he was being looked down upon explicitly because of his faith. And he never denied his faith. He never even openly complained about the treatment. Mm -hmm. He might have talked about with his friends what he was going through, but then he would say, look, I'm at Cambridge. I'm going to take them all on. I'm going to meet them one by one, and I'm going to make them see that religion does not define who I am as a person. And then, like I said, he's also the character that at a certain point in the movie sheds this being defined by his faith, in this case, Judaism. And he just says, I'm going to get better. I'm going to hire the coach. I'm going to win. I race to win. It just became about him as a man. And for me, that was the character that was more admirable because he did not let himself be defined wholly in a movie about sports, by his faith. I'll just caveat that quickly by saying, if this movie was strictly about a man going through a crisis of faith, and that was the whole crux of the movie, that would be fine. But that was not what this movie is. This is a movie about running. We think the running was pretty good, at least. Oh, Although, yeah. when you get the famous scene, the beach run at the beginning, slow motion, chariots of fire music, I called it the pasty mile in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> because that's one of the things about this movie, too. We do see at least one black person at the Olympics. We do. I don't know if it was all that common in 1924 for there to be very many black people. Jesse Owens was 12 years later in Berlin. Right. Right in Hitler's face. <laughs> like Owens won four medals, maybe even gold medals. <laughs> Is that your Jesse Owens laugh impression? <laughs> <laughs> but all these white people running makes me think of that scene in A League of Their Own. All these talented young women that get a chance to play baseball, they've been held back because they're not a man. Mm -hmm. But then you get that really brief scene. And it seems like this tease. And I think in the TV series, I never saw a League of Their Own TV series. I probably should have. They actually integrated it and they had black people in it. I think I read that That's somewhere. Right. They okay, did. They yeah. did. All right. But there's a scene in the movie where the ball is overthrown by somebody. A black person's on the field, a black woman. She throws the ball over the person she's meant to throw it to. That's right. And I think it's Ellen Sue, the pitcher, catches it and goes, oh, man, she hurt my hand from that distance. She nods, and I think Gina Davis or something, and the look is, and the notion is, I'm better than all of you. And that's the end of it. We don't get anything more of that. Yep. But I was thinking through so much of this movie, maybe because the opening with the pasty mile and the orgiastic running and thinking, <laughs> not always are black people better than white people, of course, but so often they are. <laughs> if they were given a chance, then maybe none of these guys would have been as recognized as they were Abrams or Liddell or the Americans, the Davis and Christopher characters, the Americans. And I'm not trying to bring my modern sensibility to, there should have been black people, except there should have been black people that were more a part of the race. Been. Yeah. We did comment on that a number of times throughout the movie, how white the movie is. Yeah, so are all these guys just mediocre? I'm going to win a gold, but is it really a gold? Is it more like, yeah, you were okay. In this era, 
the nations competing in the Olympics were so few by comparison with today. Was it really? We heard the comments, right? That scene in the ship when they're crossing the channel to go to France from England and whatever the character's name is that's the head of the Olympic group for Great Britain. He basically says you're like a shining beacon to Great Britain and you will beat all of the developed nations that are competing there, right? Uh So, of course, that implies that the only nations competing in the Olympics, and I probably could have looked up, frankly, how many nations competed (laughs) in the 1924 Olympics and didn't. But I'm sure you didn't have all the African nations. Half the world at this point was colonized by European countries anyway. So a lot of these places that would have become independent countries in the decades to follow weren't yet. Even if you leave aside race, you're just going to have far fewer competitors, which means, of course, it's just easier to be the best of a smaller group. They did talk about times in the 100-meter race a lot. They kept throwing around the 10.4, right, 10.4 seconds as a mark for excellence in this time period anyway. Usain Bolt and even Ben Johnson go. (laughs) To a certain extent, yeah. And maybe if you're a real race aficionado, this sounds like an eon. But I'm thinking about, I think it's the Ben Johnson time famously. I don't know what you say. 9.79. Yeah. So effectively 9.8, right? Mm-hmm. So if they're talking about 10.4 versus 9.8, you're talking about over a period of not quite, well, maybe it is six. When did Ben Johnson run? 84 or 88? 88. 88. So over a period of about 64 years, steroid-enhanced Ben Johnson was. shaved 0.6 seconds off. It's not like they were running like a 15-second 100-meter dash in 1924. And I know Usain Bolt is faster. I just don't know what his world record time is right now. I think it's something like 9.72 or something, right? Like it's I'm impressed that I forgot faster. that. I thought these guys were that much slower than the modern runners, no matter what the color of their skin is. But I guess I'm wrong about that then. It's not that much of a difference, I guess. Well, that's a lot in running. It's a lot in running. If we were just sitting in the stands watching the race, you'd see Ben Johnson or Usain Bolt crossing the line, and then it would be like, bang, bang, right? That half a second, essentially, yeah. is what you're talking about. Whether it's the number of competitors, the races and the nations that were allowed to compete, or just the sports science, right? Because I think... One of the things this movie did well was cast actors that looked like believable runners. They had the physiques that Mm -hmm. were believable. If you were to look at athletes from the 20s who were competing in the Olympic Games, they were fit, but they weren't bulky and muscular in the way that athletes would become. They were like the guy in Free Solo. Yes. The guy's in incredible shape, but he's not cut in every single way. Alex Hunold. Hunold, yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah. So he doesn't look like he's been spending his life in the gym doing squats and leg presses and stuff. But he's so strong and so in shape. Exactly. So it's an impressive time to think about. A hundred years ago, these guys were running that time. But I don't even remember how we got down this little rabbit hole of discussion other than, was it the pasty run? I thought they were less impressive. I guess I'm wrong about that then for that close. That is pretty close, especially considering... Everybody these days, I've said it before, and I've had friends disagree with me, who would say that, don't think I'm like they used to. Okay, yeah, Babe Ruth was an incredible athlete, and a lot of other people were. But we've said it before, that the worst player on a baseball team now, as an athlete, maybe not a better player, but as an athlete, is probably better than most of the greatest players back then. These guys are always in shape, and they study film, and there's so much more money involved, so they have to be in better shape. They have to be tip-top all the time. They also run the risk of getting hurt more often, though, by doing that. Don't look any further than the fact that training camp was actually training camp when it first came into being. There was yeah, a whole purpose. They was, were not in shape. Yeah, these are and guys. Especially that, in baseball, but even in things like hockey and basketball and football. Phil Esposito or whatever would run a travel agency in the off season, mm-hmm. right? And you come in 30 pounds overweight, you have to shed the pounds. I know that odd athletes will still gain weight in the off season, but by and large, like you said, they stay in shape their entire careers. And training camp is much more fine tuning that yeah. than it is actually losing all the extra pounds you gain over mm-hmm. the six months you were off. It's funny too to think that we're talking about the 1924 Paris Olympics, 
And of mm. course, the next Olympics, and I did double check this, 2024, is in Paris, which of course, well, I shouldn't say of course, because you have to still win the Olympic bid, bribe, but it is going to be 100 <laughs> years later in the, Paris. The IOC would never, Ryan, what are you talking about? Remember when it came out about, I think Salt Lake City, but there were bribes, I thought. I didn't know that until now, and I knew that. Yeah. That should not surprise anyone. But whatever the case may be, and whether it's bribes or not, it is symbiosis that 100 years later I'll be in Paris again. Although I would not want to be a Parisian. I don't want them to ever come to this city because it will shut down for years to build this stuff. And then during the Olympics, oh, my God, don't even try to get around the city. I prefer not either because our transit already sucks to begin with. Mm. But you're absolutely right. When you talk about the IOC, I mean, it's documented how much corruption and bribery there was. Probably not back in 1924. No, not the same way, at least. It didn't matter as much even if there was. There wasn't as much money involved. Well, there's no... No internet, of course. No TV money involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's no sponsorship money involved. Although we did see the odd sign, like Lipton Tea in this movie, which Mm -hmm. I thought was a nice touch. But the pendulum, I think, has swung back the other way. There's so few cities now that want to commit the dollars to hosting Mm -hmm. an Olympic Games that if you were an IOC official with your palm out going, money, please, bribe... There'd probably be cities being like, eh, we don't really want it anyway, so, you know, Seoul can have it. Isn't that or, why Beijing had it twice in a short period of time? May it went well be, the summer yeah. is what it was. Nobody else really wanted it that badly. I guess Paris did. So the main characters are Harold and Eric, and I had a hard time keeping straight who everybody was. I've seen this movie at least three times over the years. You said your first time mm-hmm. watching it now, your first full time at least watching it, full viewing. My three viewings have been spread out over 25 or 30 years. I probably should care more. It is inspirational. There are classic moments. It doesn't help that the actors, to me, even after all these years, are not that well known. Ben Cross, who plays Harold, played Sarek in Star Trek 2009. There's not that much else that really stands out. Ian Charlson. He was in Gandhi the next year. So another Best Picture winner. Back-to-back Best Picture winners. And then he was in Greystoke. So the director, I haven't said his name, Hugh Hudson, directed this. No, I said his name because he was nominated for the Oscar. He did Greystoke. That was his next big film. Ian Holm was in that. I think maybe John Gielgud was as well. Gielgud won the Oscar this exact year against Ian Holm for supporting actor for Arthur. The comedic performance. Here he's this stuffy dean who isn't saying slurs about Jews the way we've seen in other films. Like they probably didn't. I keep on thinking about school ties. I've seen that once in 30 years ago. But he wasn't quite like that. But he was being the anti-Semitic guy. Being John Gielgud, Mr. Serious, but then he's in this comedy playing the serious character. The same year as this wins the Oscar, but he was in Greystoke also. Sorry, he was in Gandhi. It's Holm and Charleston and some others that are in Greystoke about Tarzan. Yes. That's what that is. And then Hudson went on to do Revolution with Pacino, which is apparently a huge bomb. And then nothing else really stands with that much. But this is one of his first movies. It may have been his film debut, come to think of it. And it obviously stands out in big ways. It succeeded. It won the Oscars. It's still pretty well revered. But would you have known his name if I didn't tell you? Hugh Hudson? No, not at all. If some of the characters in this movie... Had gone on to bigger things and we knew who they were? Yeah, it would be like if Brad Pitt was one of the characters. Yes. It doesn't matter if he's one of five different blonde runners in this movie. You know Brad Pitt, so you know who his character well, is. we didn't know these guys. I couldn't keep straight who was who, other than Abrams, I guess, because he does get the most screen time. He does, yeah. And it was definitely a problem for me, more so with the Lindsay and the Liddell characters, yes. the two blonde guys. Be- Even at the end when they show them running and then they credit them all? Yeah. Before they do, I said, so that's him. And I was wrong. I said it was Liddell and it was Lindsay yeah. or vice versa. And we've been watching them for two hours. You said this when we were watching the end credits. They're mirrored sequences at the beginning mm-hmm. and the end of the movie, the running through. Apparently the it's slightly different, but it's the same idea at least. Yeah, exactly. And I think it would have actually been helpful if they just had the name of the runner, not the actor necessarily, but just the character's name above the head of each runner as they do at the end of the movie. Have that happen at the beginning so yes. I know who these people are. Right. 
Ben Cross's character, he's got a more unique look to him than the other myriad blonde guys in this movie, so he's easier to keep apart. Liddell and Lindsay, I confused a few times because they're all the same age, white guys. In their case, they're blonde. They sound about the same. They sound about the same. They're often wearing the upper crust dining attires or similar clothing, or they're just running in groups. I found it difficult to keep them straight. Somebody might say the Scottish accent and the British accent. It's not that different. Sorry, guys. It's not that different anyway. Yeah, not to us heathen North Americans right. anyway. I think by the point when you get to like the meaningful training sequences and all of that halfway through the movie, I'd more or less sorted out enough that I was able to keep track. But it definitely threw me a few times. But you just brought to mind something for me when you're talking about the headmaster character. Gilgood. Gilgood, yes. You're right. He wasn't explicitly throwing out slurs or anything, but there was one scene that he had with Ben Cross's character, Harold Abrams' character. They kind of epitomized why Abrams was my chosen character in this movie, because this is after Abrams has already retained Ian Holmes' character as a running coach, right? right? Which is supposed to be, oh, no, not good. He's a professional. You get a coach. That's not good. You're supposed to be an amateur. The Olympics are for amateurs only. And Harold says, well, I haven't accepted money. I am an amateur. What are you talking Mm -hmm. about? Well, you have a professional training. He's like, so what? I've never made a dime running. I'm still an amateur. I think that's fair. Why Mm -hmm. not? But in the mind of that headmaster, he just keeps saying, you can't have a professional training you. You have to be a true amateur. And then Harold stands up and says, you sit there wanting us to win by the grace of God, essentially, effortlessly win because of the gifts given to us. Well, Which you know. God do you want me to win by? Win for? In, that, in a nutshell, is kind of why I liked his character a heck of a lot more than Eric Liddell's character, because his was the character that said, this is what I want and I'm going to work for it, versus everybody else that seemed to think that the winner is just preordained based on the gifts bestowed upon them on their birth, and then that's just that. You don't fight against the tide. You just go with it. If I'm not innately and naturally outstanding at something, I should never try to get better at it. It's a weird message in a movie that's meant to be inspiring. So what about Liddell, though, when they are in Paris, and he won't run on a Sunday because he's that devout? But that's when his heat is supposed to be. That's when Mm -hmm. he's supposed to run to try to win. That's why he's even there. And I can respect religion. I don't respect religion. I can respect the logic of why he would feel this way. Yeah. But this is why you're there. It's a crock that he's this upset about. I can't run on a Sunday. And it works out because Lindsay offers up his spot because he won a medal already. So you can run this race instead. I think it was a bit of a silly thing in this movie. For us, it was an argument that didn't carry any weight. But what I found when I was reading about the historical accuracy about this movie, it just made it all the more silly to me. The schedule for the Olympics was known months in advance. Hmm, right. So Liddell knew months no surprise. in advance. Yeah. And so he did change his race, but he changed the race months in advance. And he trained for the 400 meter or whatever. He didn't train for the 100 meter and then get switched at the last second. Hmm. So that was a bit of screenwriting engineering to try to add more tension to it in that moment. Last second pressure being applied. No Prince of Wales involved at all then. No. If I know that this was strictly a deviation from history meant to add drama to the screenplay, I hate it. It does a disservice to Liddell as a man of any kind of intelligence, right? right? And we are meant to understand that he's an intelligent guy. He's gonna, they all are. Yeah. You're training, you're working towards the Olympics. That's your goal. For years. For years. You have to know that there's a chance you're going to run on a Sunday. I'm saying this within the bounds of the screenplay as we saw it. If you find out it's on a Sunday then you just run or you don't train at all. You don't make that decision and just bail on everybody at the 11th hour. I That's hurting the team too. Yeah. Isn't that what people said about Simone Biles last year when she didn't want to yes. do the gymnastic stuff because she had the twisties and it was all about how she's going to hurt the team. 
anyway, people were being very selfish about this. And then we found out, none of us really know this if you're not a gymnastics person. Mm-hmm. If you're not in the right frame of mind, you could break your neck. But I could see some of the argument for why people would think until they hear the explanation that she was being selfish. Well, this guy's not that excuse. No. He's being selfish. And if you're saying you're running for the glory of God, you run for the glory of God on Monday, but not on Sunday. I know the Sabbath thing is a big part of this movie. And I don't like that they changed it from history because, frankly, I think if you're trying to portray him as a man who has this really strong faith, right, he's going to become a missionary when it's all said and done. Yeah, and over to China, yeah. Yeah. And so that's his ultimate direction. But he has this thing that he believes he's destined to do and he must do first, which is running. That's fine. There's like a whole sequence in this movie where he's telling kids, you don't play football on a Sabbath. And he's having conversations with his sister about, I have to run because of that. And that's where you say, okay, oh no, my heat, if I qualify, is going to be on a Sunday. And then you have the inner turmoil. Well, do I continue to run or do I just treat this as a sign from God? This is not for me and my calling is truly to be a missionary. I think you can resolve all that earlier in the movie, have it be accurate to history and make him seem like a more intelligent and less selfish individual than is ultimately portrayed the way they shot it. And I said this to you when we watched it. The arguments he makes in this movie seem hypocritical or oxymoronic at times because he says on the one hand, God made me with a purpose and that's to be a missionary, but he also made me fast and I feel his pleasure when I run. So I'm doing this thing in service to God. I feel his glory, all that stuff when I run. But not that day. But not on Sunday for some reason, because that's the Lord's day. But when I run, I feel his pleasure. But you're running for God. It makes even more sense to run on Sunday than for him. Exactly. That's the way it read to me. Atheist, maybe it's different if you're a devout Catholic or something, but it just didn't play for me that way. We agree on that then. That's one of the biggest problems I have with the movie, I guess, because I don't remember this movie being this religious. So The other times I've seen it, but it's so entrenched in the whole film. It's all about God, but not now. Yeah, I think what the movie is trying to do, at least in its first half or so, is really shine a light on the hypocrisy and the bigotry of even the upper crust of Britain in this era. Mm. And I think that's the whole thing with everybody always commenting on Abram's faith and the Jewish guy can't do it, blah, blah, blah. If that's what the movie is trying to do, that's fine. I had no issue with that. In fact, it endeared me to Abram's a little bit, the way he handled that and then went forward. And, with class. With class, yeah. yeah. But when the movie shifted away from that and just shone the light on Liddell and seemed to want to make us pull for him as a man of integrity and just shone that light so heavily on the Catholic faith element of his character, it did a disservice to him in that phase of the movie, whereas I thought it did a service to Abrams in the first half. Another Best Picture winner, by the way, that had a lot of religious themes in it would be Lawrence of Arabia, which was around 20 years before this. And both movies have a similar kind of bookend thing. And that one, we see Lawrence get into a bike accident. Not a bike, as in a bicycle, but some kind of ATV. No, it was a mo- I think it was a motorcycle. Okay. So then we go back into the whole time of the war, World War One era. And he's over in Turkey through a lot of this. We see some scenes in England as well. And that's, of course, one of the most classic epics of all time. It starts with the funeral. I believe Claude Rains is involved in that. And it's all about how he was a great man, but also a conundrum or something along those lines. And at the end, we go back to that, I think. I haven't seen Lawrence Arabia in a long time. Here, you got the same kind of thing. We start with Harold's funeral. And then it goes back, and it's almost, what, 60 or so years later, and we go back to it at the very end. He converted, apparently. That's why it's a Catholic funeral at the end. Yes, that's right. So he went to be a Catholic because, I guess, the lady he was with, who wasn't actually named, what is it, Alice Krieg is her character, Sybil Gordon in the credits, but I think she's called something else in reality, Sybil something else. Maybe he converted for her. I didn't read that. But Alice Krieg, who does play her, went on to be the Borg Queen in Star (laughs) Trek First Contact, which you said you watched recently again. I did. We've both seen it many times, but I haven't seen it in a long time. i got to watch that again one of these days. 
She makes a pretty good love interest in this movie. She's quite lovely. You love the hats. Mm-hmm. Every scene, a new and more spectacular mm-hmm. hat. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. If this is an actress who, for me anyway, is best known as the Borg Queen, I'm used to seeing her without any hair visible anyway. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you pointed out, that's Alex Krieg, that's the Borg. She looks way more like her when she wears the hats, too. Yeah, absolutely. Because of the fact you don't see the hair. Yeah. For a movie that is really pale in skin tone she might be the palest of them all she really is you pointed out wow she is one very white woman in Mm -hmm. this movie lovely actress and i thought she did a good job in it but one of those characters kind of like ian holmes character she might even have more screen time on the whole oh i think she does but aside from the one scene where she tells harold to suck it up after he loses the race to liddell she's mostly a little bit of token girl token girl for harold yeah one of the few women in the whole film yeah, very few women in this film. Gilbert and Sullivan actress is where he first saw her. Well, Holm, yeah. by the way, was in some classic movies, and Bev and I have covered these on the other podcast plenty of times. Open up that Coke Zero. Coke Zero, caffeine-free. There you go. <laughs> Holm was an alien, of course. Yep. Probably the reason he got this movie. The Sweet Hereafter. Do not sleep on The Sweet Hereafter, the Canadian film that Adam McGoyan was nominated for in 1997, writing and directing that. He's terrific in The Sweet Hereafter. And, of course, he's Bilbo in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Yep. And he was in Greystoke as well a couple years later with the same director, Hugh Hudson. I don't think he was award-worthy in this movie, but I guess in a way maybe he represented the whole cast. Although he always said that's what Best Picture does. It represents the whole production, including the actors. And David Putnam was very generous, actually, when he went up to accept the Best Picture award. He even called Hudson up on stage because Warren Beatty had won for Best Director. And by the way, when Best Picture was announced, it could have really been any of the other films. Not Atlantic City. I don't think Atlantic City won anything at all. That was the Burt Lancaster, Susan Sarandon film, which is very good, by the way. I recommend it. But Raiders had won a bunch of tacticals. It wasn't likely to win Best Picture, but it had won a bunch of tacticals. Reds had won for Beatty for directing, the supporting actress, I think her name's Maureen Stapleton, and maybe for writing or something technical. On Golden Pond, won major ones for acting and for writing. So, reasonably speaking, it could have been any one of those. And when Chariots of Fire was announced, it had won the costumes, the script, and the score. The look on Beatty's face is almost like, really, huh? And then they cut away from him before he starts clapping. I think he was about to start applauding, but it almost seemed like he was annoyed that they won. But Putnam was very generous, and he brought Hudson on stage, maybe because Hudson didn't win Best Director as well. Nigel Davenport is in this, too. He was in A Man for All Seasons, the movie that's also about, I'm going to stand by my principles no matter what happens to me, including being killed for it. The police officer out there doesn't agree with us, or does agree with us. He's coming to arrest you. For all of my difficulties with that attitude in a character in a movie... I could stand it more in A Man for All Seasons than in a movie like this, where it's really purported to be more about the racing than it is about any mm-hmm. given man's religion. And we do get a lot of running in this, too. Just on your comments around Ian Holm, I do really like his performance in this movie. I don't want to undersell it. I think he does a great job. I just don't think he's given a ton to work with. I think some of the most entertaining elements of this movie are watching him train Harold. He's no Mickey and Rocky, and he's also no Donald Sutherland yes. in Without Limits. Because I was thinking about this compiling my notes. Without Limits, we covered that years ago. Also an Olympic racing movie. I think that's a better movie than this is. I would agree with that. I would certainly rather watch that again than this. Yes. Listen, no, he's no Mickey. Come on, Ryan. (laughs) Who are you talking to here? Hey, run it tomorrow. But I think if you did insert Burgess Meredith into Mm. Ian Holmes' role in this movie, it would be wildly out of place. Because everyone is so subdued by and large because they're upper crust Brits, right, in the 1920s. I did enjoy the fact that for no particular reason whatsoever. They did manage to sneak... I can't remember what's in Holmes' character's name. Mirabelli? Mil- Musabini? Musabini. Yeah. 
They, yeah, Musabini, Sam Musabini. They managed to sneak in one or two lines of bigotry out of the headmaster character talking about the half Italian, half Arabian. Played by Ian Holm, who's <laughs> either Scottish or British. Yeah, which I thought was quite entertaining as someone of Italian background. Gilbert's but, job is just to stand in rooms and insult people. Holm is a Scottish name, is it not? Good Maze, Essex, England. Oh, okay, okay, English, okay. Dad of Parkinson's, I would a shame. Just a couple years ago. What I liked about the training in particular was integral for me in any good training montage, because you're going to have a montage, mm-hmm. montage. Get some in this movie. Is some fun training techniques. You know, that always livens it up for me. If it's just watching a bunch of guys running and running and running and running. Okay, yeah, I get it. You're runners. You're running. Fine, whatever. But he has Harold doing the high toe tap kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the kid's game. The floor is lava, right? He tells him, I want you to think that all the rocks under your feet are hot as lava. And if you leave them there too long, they'll burn. So you got to quick, 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 quick. I don't know if that's something that 1920s running trainers would do, but it's fun. And it fits within the mold of this movie where training techniques in this era were not purely scientific. They were, let's run and find little ways to get a little bit better. So Colin Welland wrote this and won the Oscar. Didn't write much else. A dry white season for Brando in the 80s. I think it was the late, it must have been the late 80s. I think it was 89 or something. I think Brando was nominated for that. And he acted in Straw Dogs and other things as well. He's more of an actor than a writer, but won the Oscar here. I mentioned Vangelis won for the score. He wasn't there though. So William Hurt and Kathleen Turner, they accepted on his behalf. The Fayeds, meaning Dodie, the one who was dating Diana when they both died in, yeah. Par- in Paris, ironically, <laughs> in 1997, they were executive producers on this. And they were mentioned by, I think, Putnam. Either Putnam or Wellamed in their speeches. And Chariots of Fire apparently comes from a religious music series on the BBC, but also it's a phrase in the Bible and even William Blake. So Blake probably got it from the Bible, I'm guessing. Probably. From one of his poems, but that's what Chariots of Fire means. And anyone who didn't know that probably would have had no idea what that was. It's a yeah. fine title. It doesn't really seem to fit this, but all right, fine. I think it only fits if you understand its origins. I read it was from like a hymn or something like that. So yeah, biblical. I mentioned straw dogs, by the way. That's also, I think, from a religious text. Is it? Yeah. Because otherwise, what does straw dogs mean? What does reservoir dogs mean? But I think Tarantino is like the sound of that, basically. I think so. For straw dogs mean something, by the way, and so does this, is what I'm saying. And in the case of Chariots of Fire, I know that the movie's working title originally was something like Runners. Yeah, you got to change that. That's a wildly uninspiring title for a movie. The same year as this uh, soccer movie, Victory. (laughs) pretty boring title pretty boring yeah Stallone's in that playing soccer he's a goalie you gotta have a little bit of a eye-catching element to it so runners would not work chariots of fire people would have thought it was a Ben-Hur sequel yeah (laughs) maybe (laughs) which also won best picture and has religious undertones because he's being he's Jewish also and he's being bigoted against directed by Senor Spielbergo (laughs) also William Wyler that's who directed that movie so you're actually talking about the real Ben-Hur and not yeah. the Mr. Burns ripoff no, no, of Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur. <laughs> <laughs> you truly joke. are the greatest of all men or whatever. <laughs> you truly are the king, king of kings. Yeah. <laughs> we did a hundred takes and that, that was, was the, the best, best one. one. Well, speaking of the best, this sports action is pretty good, as we've said. Yeah. The running seems faithful to the time and there's certainly a lot of it. Sure. Although I was far more caught up in Without Limits. McFarland, USA. I'd sooner watch that again than this. I would too. I thought that was an underrated movie. I didn't think about this much when we were watching it, but maybe I should have given my comments about the cheerworthiness of this movie or lack thereof. And maybe it's just because I expected what the end result would be. Right from the get-go, you kind of know that Harold and Eric and who's the Lord guy, Lindsay, Lindsay, you know they're all going to win or get their medals or whatever. So it felt like there wasn't a lot of tension about it. Mm -hmm. The racing was done well. It seemed like it was historically accurate. They added little elements that you wouldn't see even in the 80s, like the picket ropes 
dividing the lanes on the racetrack. Yeah. That was weird and wild to me. I assume it was historic to the 20s. Also, I said to you, I was surprised to see the spikes that they were. Those were massive Maybe spikes. I shouldn't have, but those things looked like they dug in the wrong way. It would turn your ankle. Speaking of digging in, they had the scenes where they took the trowels yeah. and made their starting blocks by digging holes in the ground. So there were definitely faithful elements that I thought were really well done. And the running, I already mentioned, I thought the actors that they cast in the roles were really well cast for mm -hmm. the purposes of portraying runners. I believed that they would be. But I never felt any tension watching any of the races, yeah. never felt like, come on, Harold, you can do it. I don't know if that's because of my expectations or because there wasn't a lot of us watching whole races. True. There was a lot of, let's see them down the stretch and into the finish line. And by then you're like, oh, okay, well, I can kind of see how it's going to play out. I think maybe the only full race we actually saw was when Eric was running at that Scottish meet. He didn't go there to run, but he was giving a speech and they said, ah, we'll get you some kit, go run. And he got knocked down and then came back and won it or something like that. Was that it? Or was that a different race? Well, I guess so, but Harold also ran the quad, which is a big deal. You're supposed to do that before it hits. That's true. That's it strikes true. 12, then get around before it strikes the next. However that worked, I don't know. But anyway, that was a big deal to them, I guess. Yeah, it's true. I yeah, guess we fine. saw the whole thing there too, didn't mm -hmm. we? Yeah. Well shot, but not particularly. Come on, you I could do it. I was more into last week's or two weeks ago movie, Major League Two. Oh, me too. <laughs> Come on. And that movie is not nearly as good as this. Objectively speaking, but I think I like that one more, and I would sooner watch that again. As yeah. for a score factor, not really, although Alice Creek looks great. We always admit when we think the guys look hot in movies, and mm -hmm. I don't really think that's the case this time. They're fine, but they didn't tickle my cookies. <laughs> tickle your cookies? Charlie Sheen in 1994, hot man. Corbett Burnson, still pretty hot. Yep. But I, not these guys. It's a lot of very pasty, upper crusty looking Brits in tuxedos a lot of the time, mm -hmm. so no, it's not exactly ooh la la. Although... When Eric Liddell is running, he is sure having himself a good time. That's true. The look on his face. He's scoring. He's scoring. With God. <laughs> yeah. It's like the line from, what is it, Pumping Iron with Arnold, when he's talking about yeah. coming all the I'm time. coming all the time. Yeah, it's same thing with Liddell in this yeah. movie. Well, I'm going to give it a not very good score because I just didn't care. I can respect everything about it. My score as it is, is respect for the filmmaking and for the accuracy of everything and all that, but I felt it was dry and fairly dull, and I'm going to admit it's also... Not helped by the fact that one of my favorite movies of all time was up against it for Best Picture that year. Raiders. I think Reds is better. I haven't seen that one in a while. Mm -hmm. On Golden Pond, I've seen that many times. I watched it again last summer. I like that one a lot. And this one's Best Picture. So I'm going to give it a five. I know it's not a very fair score. Major League Two, I gave that a higher ranking than this. But as Roger Ebert said about his thumbs up, thumbs down, it's very subjective. Three viewings all these years. My score is five. What about you? I was going to go right down the middle, too. I was mm -hmm. going to give it a five as well, and for almost exactly the same Just reasons. Just respect, right? There's stuff that is done very well. So, yeah, five for that. But if you're making a movie like this, if it's all about inspiration and it's all about cheers and really getting behind this man of principle, it didn't really accomplish any of that for mm -hmm. me. So how can you go much higher? I enjoy period pieces as movies go generally. So just seeing the 1920s portrayed for me was kind of interesting and fascinating. As far as the arc of the movie goes, I didn't care. The number of movies we've done, especially over the last year or so, where we've had fun with it, where we've actually really enjoyed watching and it. the critics but, said it's terrible. And I think in those instances, we even acknowledged, yeah, this is not a great piece of filmmaking or screenwriting or cinematography, but it's a fun movie and an enjoyable watch. And you'd watch it again. And I'd watch it again. I don't know if I'll ever rewatch this movie, to be honest with you. I think I've given enough chances at this point. But we covered a very reputable film. Sure. It's in the can. <laughs> it's in the can. It's done. <laughs> so thanks for listening, everyone. This seems like as good a time as any to let everyone know that we're ending this podcast on June the 7th. 
Chris knows this, but no one else does. Well, I guess Bev knows this. Wait, she, what? <laughs> We're Chris doing what? Out right now. <laughs> You're telling me this way. <laughs> this is how I find out. You tell me. <laughs> uh, Steve Martin. So this show debuted on June the 7th, 2018. So wrapping up that same day. That'll be a Wednesday, by the way. So one day earlier. But we'll go sure. the symbiosis yeah. of June the 7th, 2023. And wrapping up that day makes, of course, five years to the day. We'll end up posting 131 episodes, and we never miss a deadline, except for one time when I was on vacation, and the show was delayed until Sunday. That was Rudy or Longest... I think it was Longest Yard, maybe. The original Longest Yard. It was, it was Yard. a long time ago now. Yeah, and it was only by three or four days. But we've covered just about all the movies we ever cared to cover, and then some. Oh, yeah. Sure, we could keep doing this for years, because there are a lot more sports films left undone, and some are thought of as classics, but most of those good ones are from the 40s and 50s, and going back that far isn't why we started this podcast in the first yeah. place. We wanted to look back at sports movies from our youth and see what we think of them now that we're adults. Well, that's the 80s and the 90s, and you'll find that most of our 127 episodes so far are movies from those decades. Not that we didn't go way back into the past sometimes. 1951, we did Angels in the Outfield, the original one, for example. Enter the Dragon was before I was born and certainly before you were born. Or sometimes cover something that came out in more recent years, like Bruised and Hustle. It just feels like June 7th is a good time to say goodbye. I can go smell the roses again and get out of this room so much. (laughs) So we'll do four more of these, then wrap it up. We already definitely know our final movie. We'll reveal that sometime soon. And if you know our podcast, you might be able to predict what it's going to be, our very last podcast ever. In two weeks, we'll cover our final basketball movie as we also cover what I guess will be our final documentary. And we did more of those over the years than I expected to. I count six documentaries in our past, including this one. This would be the sixth one. Yeah, I maybe missed something. I counted five and now six. And it's a look at LeBron James and his high school teammates giving us a preview of greatness more than a game. Considering LeBron recently set the NBA record for all-time scoring, it's kind of a fitting... Oh, did he? I didn't know he actually passed Kareem. I didn't hear that. Yeah, it was somewhat recent. Oh, no, I did hear that one. I'm thinking of Ovechkin in hockey. Hasn't oh, passed yes. Gretzky yet. He will probably he will. one day. That's what I'm thinking of. He's, a, I think, another two-ish years before for he can goal scoring. Goal yes. scoring. But LeBron has scored more points than anybody now in the history of basketball. Yes, yeah. and I think this is, what, his 21st season in the NBA. And I still vividly remember, even though I haven't seen this documentary about St. Mary's, right, as his high school team, I think, like that, yeah. still vividly remember watching him playing high school ball and watching his first game ever in the NBA playing against the Sacramento Kings. I stayed up until 10 o'clock to watch the yeah. Cleveland Cavaliers play the Sacramento Kings just to watch LeBron James play. So we're on Twitter. I'm at MovieFiend51. Chris is at ScoringOutMovies. The email is ScoringOutTheMovies at gmail.com. And you can find us in all the best podcast places. We've done 127 with this episode of Chariots of Fire. So take her easy, you dashes. I will continue to not care about you and all your slow-mo dashing. Do, 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 do. I'm so upper-class British. Upper-class British. It's time to wrap this podcast up. I've had enough of Chairs of Fire. Yeah, we have some slow motion running to do down at Lake Ontario, so we better get going. All the running you do is slow motion. (laughs) (laughs) You had to throw that in there, did you? (laughs) Harsh, but fair.